Welcome to No No Ordinary Ordinary Women, Women. the podcast where two ordinary broads chat about extraordinary women, the good, the bad, and And the the shit crazy. Hi, I'm Lynn. And I'm Rose. Did you guys miss us? I missed us. It's been a whole week. It's been a whole week. I was going to say since we've heard from you. Since we've heard from you, yeah. (laughs) Since you've heard from us. Yes. Uh, We're going to talk about our cock. Tale of the day. I'm taking a sip really right good. Now. I'm gonna finish it in like two minutes. So we are playing soccer. Rose and I play on a women's team. And after the games, we usually sit and have just like one beer or a seltzer or something after and sit and chit chat. And we were doing that, and we were talking about different cocktails. And one of the women on our team, the first time she stayed and had a cocktail with us, she said that she we were talking about bourbon and vodka and stuff like that. And she said she loves bourbon margaritas. And we were like, oh. <gasps> Oh, I've never had one. I haven't either. And it's really good. They are really, really, really good. So highly recommend. I'll post this um, tonight. It is um, and it'll also be in our highlights if you're listening to it next week. Um, It is bourbon. I used um, Knob Creek is what I had. Bourbon and then two ounces of bourbon, one ounce of lime juice. I did fresh squeezed. I almost bought the bottled lime juice, but that no. just never tastes as good. But it's so much freaking easier. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you did and, a great job cutting it and squeezing yeah, it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Squeezer. I got it all over the place. <laughs> and then one ounce of agave. And that kind of takes that tart out of it. It makes it a little bit. And it doesn't taste sweet at all, though. It's no. Per, it's, it's a perfect blend. And it's not bitter. It's like, I don't know. It just has this really good, like, it's so warm, good. bourbony. Mm. And Christina, just so you know. I shook it. I did a shake, a shake, 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 Denora. I did that before I did it. And then I poured it, it over very a crushed ice. It's so good. And then I garnished it with a sprig of mint. Y'all, it's the bomb yeah. de gâté. I have to have like four of these. I know. I only brought enough to make four. An Uber home. Yeah, Uber home. <laughs> you can have your car towed say something's wrong with it. Oh, that's right. There is something, <laughs> there wrong, is with something wrong with it. <laughs> I won't be lying. Mm. So, so Lynn took our... Um, tablecloth home and washed it because it was a mess and then she immediately spilled I spilled bourbon, bourbon all, all over, over it. it you know when like so I put the bourbon instead of bringing a whole bottle with me I just put it in like a small like jelly jar like a mason jar and you know when you're trying to pour something like that unless you just like go balls to the wall and pour it really hard it doesn't it it like drips out the back so I tried to catch it with the lid and it still went all over the damn tablecloth too dripping out the back dripping out ew. <laughs> ew. you've been taking it in the booty <laughs> Gross. You're gross. Do it in the butt. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's been a fun week. So, um, I don't think that really happens, does it? What? When you do it in the booty and you said dripping out the butt? No, we're dripping out the back. I'm talking about pouring in the jar. Oh, no, you're talking. Oh, never mind. Oh, my God, bro. Because you said dripping out the. I said that's. I don't know. Oh, my God. She's a perv, y'all. You're this a is perv. what I have to deal with. I was just wondering. I'm calling cause... HR when I get home. <laughs> They're going to hang up on you because it's me. <laughs> I'm not taking your call. <laughs> I'm calling Megan. <laughs> She's an HR. Um, just not for us. Um, so I hope you guys like the story that's dropping today. By By the time you hear this, it'll be last week. It was uh, Rose did a story on Morgan Harrington. It was nuts. Um, I thought about it so much this week. Did you? Yeah, it's just it's yeah. it was such a tragic story. Um, in you know, coming from this town, like all the weird shit that's happened in our town. And when you you're know? like living it 
like real time. You don't really. Um, I don't know. You don't expect that to happen in your town, and then no. I mean, then it happened three times. Right. Three different girls. Yeah. Well, really, four if you include. And he was like living so close to me at the time that it was like. Oh yeah. You know, and they, it really happened to four girls if you think about it, because Sage. Um, I can't remember Sage's last name. Remember Sage, mm-hmm. the the girl that went missing. Mm-hmm. So she was first, then Morgan, then um, Hannah. Hannah, and then no, was uh, what's her name was in between Morgan and Her Morgan um, and Hannah. We just talked about her last time. I couldn't remember her name, and then I remembered it. Um, was she in between them? I feel like she was in between them. I think you're right. Yeah, so it's like I mean that wasn't in the city. That was like in an out out um, an outward county. Like yeah, in, right. But still, you I know, know, it's crazy. I feel like that. I mean, I don't know. The whole thing with Sage kind of concerns me. Like, could it have been? I'm sure they looked into it to see if it was him again. But his mo is young white girls. Sage was black. Yeah, right. And the other girl was black too, wasn't she? Yeah, but they they know who did it. To yeah, her. right. They they found out. But yeah, I mean. Ugh. I know it's it's scary to think about, and I'm sure he's done it to other people. I mean, you don't just kidnap someone like that and then discard their body and get away with it for five years. Yeah, who was it? When was it? There was one where the the person had tried to something I read or listened to, or the person had tried to kidnap somebody like two or three times and they got away. They just didn't have it, and then finally, by the time they did kidnap somebody and kill them, it was like they had it like methodically planned right, out. Right, down to a science. Yeah. yeah. So, ugh. anyway. And he, and he um, kidnapped that girl in um, Fairfax. Yeah. Yep. I mean, so he just he just got scared and ran off. We all know that that's, there is way more because it, it, there's, there has, there has to be And that was in more. 2005 and then Morgan was in 2000 and... God, I, I'm so bad I think with it dates. was like nine or something. I'm so bad yeah. with dates. Yeah, it was nine because they found her body in 2010. Yeah. So it's in four up. years, for sure, he did some, th- oh, some yeah. other shit. Absolutely. Know? I don't have, I have no doubt yeah. at all. He's disgusting. Um. So anyway, enough of giving him credit for any or giving him any airtime. But um. so today I'm going to tell you, Rose, about Ruth Corker Burks. Corker. Corker. You Corker. You brought her. <laughs> I've never heard that. That's anyway, um, do, you know who, do you know who she is? I don't, know. Okay. So Ruth Corker Burks is from Arkansas. It's so funny. I was listening to a podcast. Um, out of, there was like three podcasts I listened to about this that were out of London, which I thought was interesting. That's really a lot of people weird. covered this. And it's an American story? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they they called it Arkansas when they pronounced Arkansas. It made me giggle. So I remember I mean, my brother calling it that. That's the way it's spelled. So um, she was an Arkansas woman who, in the midst of the 1980s AIDS epidemic, provided support for dozens of men who were tr- who were dying of AIDS. Men who were often abandoned by their families, with even some health professionals being reluctant to treat them. According to Ruth, she also ensured that the war- that that they would have a proper final resting place, providing a burial of dozens of men in a family cemetery. Uh-huh. So she was, at the time, this is a really tough time. And I do remember this as a kid. I remember like people being terrified of AIDS and stuff oh, yeah, like that. Yeah. I remember that. I don't remember this story in particular. 
So sorry to interrupt, but remember when we were on that <clears throat> girls' trip and I told you, I was telling you guys how sometimes when I drink, my legs get tingly? Did I just make you tingly? Did this drink is making my legs tingly. It hasn't happened in a long time. Isn't that so That's weird? That's me, Rose. It's not your oh drink. God, Think about it. It only happens when you're with me, probably. <laughs> I make everybody tingle. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm single. Send me your digits. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> even though it's all women listening. I don't know. At this point, does it even matter? No, there's some men. Remember that one guy? Oh, there's one guy. told us we were... Well, I'm sure he didn't listen. He told us how dumb we were for... Um, oh, that... that was on social media. I know. I think. What was her name? Oh, Natalia Grace. Natalia Grace. He was like, uh, his comment on our post, we talked about how her parents abandoned her. He's like, duh, read the st- know the story before you post on it. She was an adult. And yeah. I was like... He, yeah, he said, read the story before you make a podcast about it. Like, oh, well, we were just winging it. Yeah, we're just winging it. We're just, we're just like, just, you know, shooting craps and saying her name four and five times. We just read a couple of headlines and then we we're like, Maybe oh. he should listen to the motherfucking story before he comes at it. And obviously he didn't, like, watch that documentary or... No, because I just still believe she... I cannot wait for her documentary. We're going to do a part two. I'm doing a part two when she comes out with her documentary. Oh, I wanted to watch. Didn't you say Robbie and Ellen were... Going, they were going live about it one day, and I didn't watch it. I forgot. It was on there. It was only on there. Um, oh, if you're like part of their Patreon, their Patreon. Because I went back and tried to find it, and it was on their Patreon. So I might have to join their Patreon just so I can hear it. Because I'd love to hear their their take. On not that. that I would necessarily agree with them, but I'd love to hear their take. On yeah, it. right. I wonder if they. they <clears throat> I mean, Robbie is a lawyer. She may have dug up other information that I missed. Hard, hard. I mean, Lynn's kind of like a journalist. I am. I am a journalist. People call me all the time and beg me to come take do stories for them, but but she decided to go with me because I was begging. Please, Lynn. Please. I'm dedicated to my (laughs) Rossi. Okay. Can I continue now? Mm, I guess. Okay. Francis Ruth Coker was born. I said not how you said her name. It's not Corker. Cocker. Oh, Jesus, Rose. Cor- it's, I said Corker. I want to say Corker, but it's Coker. C-O-K-E-R. Sorry. Not Cocker? It's not Cocker, and it's not Corker. It's Coker, I guess. Corker, I don't even know her. Coker? I hardly I hardly know her. Just that one time in college. Coker in the front, poker in the back. <laughs> yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are 13-year-old boys. <laughs> Oh, the bourbon's hitting already. Oh, here we go. Okay. She was born in Hot Springs, Arkansas, on March 19th, 1959, (laughs) Arkansas. Her parents were James Isham Coker and Aileen Lawler Coker. Her father, who was almost... Oh, my God. Were they brother and sister? No. (laughs) Her name was Lawler, and then she changed it to Coker. Poker. Her was saying the same thing. <laughs> but I was too mature to say it. Uh, too mature, you were too mature to say it? The th- for the third time. Whatever. Her parents, uh, her father, who was almost 20 years older than her mother, served in both World War One and World War Two. Holy Eat shit. Eat them apples. I didn't even <laughs> Wow. You've been practicing all day. That's why it took you so long to write your yeah. story. During Ruth's earliest years, her mother was hospitalized with tuberculosis for an extended period of time, leaving her father to attend to his infant daughter. So he basically raised her alone. Wow. Um, but she lived with her grandparents and her father. So oh, there you know, was his, that. his mom was taking care of her. Probably, yeah. Um, she and her dad developed a very close relationship, but he died in 1964 when Ruth was just five. 
um, the, her mother still struggling with her own health and emotion, her own health. Um, she emotionally distanced herself from um, Ruth and put her in a children's home at times. <gasps> I'm like, what the fuck? Why you can just put them in the children's I, home for like a little? I while? guess be like, oh, I just don't want them for this week. I'm going to drop them off. I have no option? idea. <laughs> I have no. I got the impression from the book her mother had a little bit of a mental illness as well. Oh, okay. Um, not just the TB. So, you know. Um, so her mother was, and this will help you understand a little, maybe this is just what I, I got out of the book. I don't, um, the book is called All Young, um, All the Young Men. Um, it's about Ruth, um, Burke's story. It's written by her. So, well, it's written through an author, but with her help. She, um, one of the things is that I got out of it that her mother, like, had a mental illness. But and when I tell you this, I think you'll agree. So her mother hated her uncle, her brother. Okay. So she hated him. And so they got in a huge argument at one point in their lives when, when Ruth was young. Mm-hmm. And the mother and the uncle got in a huge argument. And she said, you're not going to be buried in the family cemetery. And he was like, you know, basically the fuck I'm not. And yeah. she was like, I'll show you. So she went and bought all 262 <gasps> le- spaces left at the at the cemetery. The mother, I don't know. I guess she had. Well, the father died, so she had all of his pension and stuff from oh. the from the military. I assume. I don't know, but so she bought all of the all the plots, so her uncle couldn't be buried <laughs> at the family cemetery, <laughs> and none of his none of his family could either. So, and when he died, her mother shot Roman cam camp. Her mother shot Roman candles over the hearse as it was pulling into the <gasps> cemetery, the public cemetery where he was buried. Oh, my God. Why did she – does it say why she hated him so No. Much? She said she doesn't know why, but I'm like, he really – I don't know what he did to her, but her mother did not like her brother. But I think that that also shows a little bit of maybe mental instability. I don't know. Maybe. If he did something to her to make her that angry, she probably had mental issues. That's my thought. Yeah. But, like like oh, caused, rightfully so. caused by that? Yeah. Yeah, possibly, yeah. So when Ruth um, got older, she attended the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, earning a degree in speech and communication. She married a man she later called a bully. And the couple divorced after five years. They had their they had a daughter during their marriage, and her name was Allison. Um, Allison's dad later died in a car accident when she was young, when she was a young girl. They need to um, check these things because yeah. both her husbands died. Well, no, she only had one. No, her father died. Oh, her father. Yeah. The mother was the crazy. Her father died. Her father was 20 years older than the mother, so he died. Ruth had a kid with someone. Yeah, Ruth married a man. Oh, I thought you were talking about the mom. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. So I'm talking about Ruth now. Lots of bourbon. Sorry. Sorry. Get it together. So the HIV AIDS epidemic um, was a devastating global health crisis that shook the world. This period was characterized by alarming rise in the number of cases and a profound lack of understanding about the disease. The virus primarily affected the gay community, infecting. In, in I'm sorry, the virus primarily affected the gay community, community, injecting fear and stigma into society. With limited knowledge about HIV transmissions and no effective treatments available, the virus spread rapidly claiming countless lives and leaving families and communities shattered. As the crisis intensified, public awareness campaigns emerged, but misinformation and discrimination hindered progress in combating the epidemic. In the early 1980s, 
stands a the early 1980s stands a dark chapter in history, reminding us of the importance of compassion, scientific advancement, and united efforts in the face of such a deadly threat. Um, so, Ruth knew about AIDS because she had an uncle that lived in Hawaii, and she knew he was gay. Yeah. And so she called him, and she was like, "Hey, are you, um, you know, are you going to be okay? I'm worried about you. I keep hearing about this disease." And he said, "Oh, oh, honey, it's okay. Only the only the gay leather, only the leather guys in San Francisco are getting this." <laughs> I was like, "Oh, Jesus! What does that mean?" There's like. Well, because San Francisco has a huge gay population and there's like a leather population. What is leather? What is leather? Like leather, like a leather purse, leather yeah, but why are chaps. Because they, they wear leather. Leather vests, leather oh. ball gags. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon was Mr. Leather San Francisco when he was younger. <laughs> My Brandon, I that love him. That doesn't even surprise me. Yeah, he's my he's my honorary son. Mm-hmm. He was Mister Le- Leather San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> Not surprised at all. That's so funny. Yeah. So anyway, so in 1984, she was visiting a friend in the hospital. It was her best friend, and this friend was having reconstructive sur- her fifth reconstructive surgery due to cancer. I think she had esophageal cancer. Um, she was often there with her friend, and would bring the nurses treats, and you know, make them. Cakes and Aww. cookies and everything like that. And she, they, she was friendly with all the hospital staff. Well, back then, there was no phones or anything like that, you know, like handheld phones. So when she would be sitting in the room with her friend, she would kind of get fidgety and be like, she had to walk around. Yeah. Um, so she walked out of her friend's room for a little break. Her friend was sleeping. And she started walking around. She saw the nurses in the hallway. You know, the nurses she had given all these treats to and talked to yeah. and everything. And they were drawing straws. And she's like, what the hell are they doing? And she noticed this door covered in hazard tape and a big red plastic saying, you know, do not enter or whatever. And outside the door is all these styrofoam, like styrofoam wasn't that big back in the 80s as much as it is now, unfortunately. Um, And they, there's styrofoam food trays, not reusable ones, but styrofoam ones, all lined up down the hall. With food on it, like just like a bologna sandwich that was like flopped open and like and none of the food was just there. Like who the fuck wants to eat food that's been like on the floor? Yeah, gross. So anyway, she sees all this and she's like, what in the world is going on? So she sees them drawing straws and then they all walk away except one woman. And she like goes and she starts like, you know, she walks away. She gets the short straw and she walks away. I guess she's going to put on like, you know, like protective gear, PPE. Right. So she was like, what the hell's going on? So she just walked right in the room. No PPE at all. She walked in the room and she sees, she's like, oh, the person in the bed, you know, the person in this room must be in the bathroom or something because she sees like nothing. Yeah. And she walks a little closer to the bed and she looks and she looks and there's a man laying in the bed. And he's so pale that he's the color of the sheets, and yeah. she didn't even realize he was say, in there. Was he so pale she couldn't see him? Oh, yeah, she couldn't crazy. even see him. He was the same color as the sheets, and he was like 70 pounds. Oh. And he was on death door, de- death's doorstep. He was like absolutely like really close to dying. So she walked in, and she looked at him, and she was like, is, is there anything I can get you? Do you need anything? And he just, he just said, I, I want my mama. Oh. I want my mama. So she thought to herself, well, that's easy enough. I can do that. So she walks out to the nurse's station and she says, the guy down there, he wants his mama. And they were like, 
you didn't go in there. And she was like, yes, I did. And they were like, you can't go in there. You're not supposed to go in there. He's got that gay disease. And she said, look, he just wants his mama. I'm, can you give me her number? So they all kind of looked, whatever. And so they, they gave her the phone number. Yeah. So she grabs the phone, which she had used a million times when she was visiting her friends at the nurse's station. Yeah. And she pulls it toward her to use it. And the woman grabs it and pulls it back. She goes, oh, no, you can use the payphone." Like they're not letting her touch anything because oh, she's no. been in that room. she went in the room. Yeah. yeah. So she goes to the payphone, which isn't that unlike, like when we when COVID was really new. I, it reminds me a lot of COVID. It really you know? does. I mean, people just people kind of are like freak wiping out. down their mail. Yeah, yeah. Don't act like they're crazy because I remember you wiping down your groceries. Chris made me do it. <laughs> we wiped our groceries and everything. Um, but anyway, so she went to the phone. She called the guy's mother, and um. She was like, hi, I'm calling about your son. He's in the hospital. And the mother hung to, hangs up. Oh, jeez. And she was like, god damn it. She didn't have any money. She was very poor. She's like, great. i got to spend another dime to call. Yeah. So she puts the money in the phone. She calls again. She said, listen, don't hang up on me. She said, if you hang up on me, I will post in your community's newspaper that your, husband, that your son died and what he died from. So she's like, now I got her attention. Yeah. She said... Your son wants to see you. And she said, I don't have a son. My son died when he when he um, when he turned gay. That's what she said. Um, and she said, he's 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 has no time. He's getting ready to die. And he just wants to see you. And she said, I don't have a son. Could you imagine? And she said, well, do you have any any, you know, any funeral arrangements set for him? She goes, I don't have a son. And then she hangs up. Oh, so um, she went back into the room. And he looks at her and he goes, Mama, I knew you'd come. Oh. And she's like, oh, shit. <laughs> so she said to him, she said, what um, what was the name that I called you when you were little? I can't remember what was your nickname. And he's, I can't remember what it was now. He said it. And so she started calling him that and rubbing his hand Aww. and saying songs to him and stuff like that. And he, she sat at his bedside until he died. Oh, that's so sad. It was like 13 hours or something like that. Sat with Holy him until shit. he died. So um, everyone was terrified. Nobody, everyone knew this disease was contagious because yeah. so many people were getting, but nobody knew how. How and people were terrified of even touching a person with HIV at the time. So, did you know that? Speaking of wiping mail, did you know that stamps and envelopes? Remember, you used to lick envelopes and stamps, yeah. right? And remember, they started coming with the peel off. Yeah, that was from AIDS. Oh, really? People were afraid they were going to get AIDS from somebody mailing them a letter. Oh, wow. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Because they were licking it with their, you know, with their spit and saliva. Like, how do you know? Like, I guess unless you suck on the stamp. I mean, I mean it's a good good idea not to do that because it's gross. What, to lick like, a you stamp? think somebody's, like, licking an, I mean, not so much a stamp because you're not going to peel the stamp off, but, like, an envelope. Somebody licks it and closes it, and then you get it, and then you, like, stick your finger under to open it. Yeah, but it's not going to live that long. What's going to live that long? That's true, yeah. Nothing can live yeah. that long. But it's still kind of gross. Yeah, it is a little bit gross. I mean, not that I'm afraid I of I lick all the disease. things I send you. I lick the whole envelope and then I send it to you. Well, I lick it once I get it. Though. Oh, so I guess figures. I probably yeah. am getting whatever you have. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so she knew that if people found out she helped this man, she would she would lose her daughter. She was terrified that the courts would take her daughter away um, and her community would turn their back on her. Yeah. But she could not help. She was like, God brought me to this man and was telling her that this was her journey. She was very religious. 
So she couldn't find a funeral home and kept calling and calling and calling funeral homes. And she finally found one 75 miles outside of town. She had passed it several times driving. And um, it was like all overgrown with weeds. And she remembered the name because she had passed it so much. And she was like, I bet they could use the business because obviously they were struggling. So they told her, yes, we'll do it. But we'll only come at night and pick him up. We don't want anyone to see us. We're only cremate him. We're not going to do embalming and we're not going to do a funeral or a wake. And she was like, fine, perfect. So a few weeks later. It's so crazy. She's the one. What did they do with the other people with AIDS that died? I don't know. That's what I wondered. Like before him. Or, yeah. yeah. So a few weeks later, she received a cardboard box in the mail, just the regular postal. And she was like, oh, my gosh, somebody sent me a present. <laughs> she was so excited. And she yeah. opens it and it was the man's ashes. Oh, no. So she didn't want to bury. She's like, I can't bury this man in a cardboard box. Yeah. She was like, I can't do that. So she went to a friend's pottery shop and, you know, went to the discount table where there's something like misfired or chipped. And yeah. she got a cookie jar. And she put his ashes in the cookie jar. And she's like, who wouldn't want to be buried in a cookie jar? Yeah. So she took it to the family cemetery. And because she owned all these lots. So it was like, you know, why not? Um, So she took it to the family cemetery and she buried him right on top of where her dad was buried because she knew her dad would take care of him. Oh, isn't that so sweet? That is sweet. She used a post hole digger to bury the cookie jar. So her dad was like. Really, really kind too. I guess it seems that way. I mean, I mean, I, mean, how, I feel like she... somebody from Arkansas that she figured her dad, she knew her dad would take care of him. That's yeah. pretty progressive for that time. So words, but she also only knew her dad till she was five. So that's true. It could be like, you yeah, know. he could have been faking it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, she could be misremembering. Yeah, we all. But, put I mean, it's yeah. fine to think that because he's dead. well, because we always <laughs> put, you know, especially if you don't remember a lot about somebody, you put them on a higher pedestal yeah, right. kind of thing. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. So word spread quickly that she would make funeral arrangements for these men that were dying alone in hospitals. And it wasn't more than a few days before she received a phone call from another hospital that needed a burial that needed burial arrangements for a young man who had just died from AIDS. So this confirmed in her mind that God wanted her to do this. One of the next hospitals that called her was a Catholic hospital. They said that they have a man in there. We need your help. We heard you'll help. So she goes down there yeah. and a nun met her in the lobby. And was talking like real quietly and like hurrying her along and telling Ruth that the hospital didn't have the means to take care of this patient and she needed to get the hell out, get him out of there. Yeah. And she was like, um, you know, slow down, you know, and, and, and she so they arrived at the patient's door and the nun handed Ruth, Ruth a full hazmat suit and said, put this on. And Ruth just said, what's his name? You know, I don't care about all this shit. What's his yeah. name? So she put on everything that the nun gave her. And the nun just said, his name's on the chart. And he was dumped in the at the outside of the ER doors, which oh, is just so fucking sad. Because nobody wants nobody wanted to be associated with him yeah, right. because they would assume that they were gay. They had, right. And I just, oh, my God, it yeah. makes me so angry and so sad at the it same time. So she looked at his chart, and his name was Ronald Wilkins. Ruth didn't recall knowing any Wilkins in Hot Spring, and she knew a lot of people. When she looked at Ronald, she knew death was a matter of hours away. She walked back out of the room quickly to tell the nun that there was no way they were going to move him. It was too late, but the nun was gone. The nun's like, yeah, deal with it. Bye. And I'm like, what the fuck? Are you a nun or are you the devil? Aren't all nuns like that? No, not all nuns. We had a really good friend that was a nun when I was growing up, and she was amazing. Oh, really? She definitely practiced what she preached. But there are some sweet oh, ones and then some yeah. Like oh, yeah. There's, we had a principal that was a nun that was amazing when I went to Catholic school, and she died. But 
we don't, I mean, it's, you know, there are some crazy nuns for sure. But, you know, a lot of the nuns. Whoopi was a very good nun. She was. She was a good nun. She should be an honorary nun. She really should. Yeah. So she went back to the room and sat down next to the bed. She held Ronald's hand and said, Ronald, I'm here for you. She felt weird holding his hand with a glove on. She was like, like, this is just weird. So she took it off and held his hand. She was like, I'm wearing a dress and I'm wearing this PPE. What is a disease going to go under my, yeah, you know, like under my dress get, and attack right. my legs? It's the only thing showing right now. Is my yeah. leg. It's, just, it's just ridiculous. So she left the suit on and she took off her mask. She sat with him until he stopped breathing. She breathed. Like, obviously, if only gay men are getting it, then it's not spreading that easily. Right. Right? Right. Because if it was spreading that easily, then everyone would have it. Right. Well, they didn't know exactly. They knew it was being spread by bodily fluids, but they didn't know to what extent. Yeah. Was it just from sexual intercourse? Was it from, like, kissing or sharing a drink or anything like that? They didn't know what extent. But, like, holding someone's hand, I mean... Yeah, I mean, they just, I mean, you just didn't know. Just wash your hand after and yeah, I probably you won't die. It's so sad. So she began creating makeshift support network for the young men. She knew she had to find a way to help before the men got to this point. She Like, she had to figure something out before they were, like, on death's door. Right, yeah. Maybe help to keep them, maybe to keep them healthier until the end, you know, get some, do something. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so Ruth had very little money. She was very poor. She worked as a timeshare salesperson, and the hours at her job gave her flexibility to run errands for her new ministry, if you will. <laughs> so Allison at this time was four years old and spent every weekend with her dad, which freed up a lot of Ruth's time to help these patients. Sometimes when Ruth received calls in the middle of the night, she would have to bring Allison, though. And she'd bring him to bring her to the hospital with her and she'd have her sit out like, in you know, in the lobby or in a chair outside yeah. the room. And the doctors and nurses scolded her for having her daughter there. Why are you going to bring a kid around this and this and that? And she's yeah. like, get over yourself. So Ruth knew these men needed better food, not nasty hospital food that was cold and sitting on the floor. They needed calories and healthy options. She couldn't provide this on her own because she had no money. So one morning she was went to the grocery store and she was sitting in her car for a minute and she saw the bread man go to the dumpster and was throwing away all these loaves of bread. Yeah. And she was like, what is he doing? Like just trays of bread. And so she was like, what in the world? So she walked up to him and she told him her situation. She told him she was helping these men that were dying and they needed food and she loved cooking and would love to cook for them, but she didn't have the means to. And he said, you know, if you want to take these, this bread, you know, all these, this bread with you, I'm, I have no idea that you're taking it. Like basically I'll turn a blind eye yeah, to right. what you're doing. And so she looked in there and there was other stuff in there too, that the grocery store had thrown away and most everything was in plastic bags. So she, so she literally dumpster diving. Yeah. And right. then she went to another store and same thing. She was like, oh, shit. So she's like getting all this food and then bringing it home and preparing. She said like sometimes if there was like produce or something, if it was like sitting on the top or whatever, she'd just bring it home and wash it really good and use it yeah. because it was, you know, why waste it? I should start doing that. Yeah, it's a Cut good idea. Down groceries. It's a good idea. Haven't you seen the dumpster divers on TikTok? No. Yeah, I've seen them. They, they dive for stuff? like – they go to places like – um like Bed Bath and Beyond, or like, um, you know, stores like that, and they, you know, like, oh, look what they threw away. You know, they throw stuff away. They get so. good stuff. Yeah, they get really good stuff. You should really? follow them on TikTok. Yeah, it's kind of fun to watch. 
I should be a dumpster diver. Once it goes in the dumpster, it's free game. That's Anybody right. can take it. So, so eventually, the stores that she was going to and dumpster diving at started leaving the food outside the dumpster for her oh. instead of putting it in the dumpster, which was really oh, that's cool. Nice. So there, you know, the emotional toll she was enduring of watching people suffer from AIDS was pretty high. You know, it was just, it was very, very tolling. So by the end of the first summer, she had buried eight men. Jeez. The doctors in the cancer wing of the hospital were the ones caring for these patients because they didn't know where else to put them. Like they were like, what, you know, what is this? Right. Yeah. And the doctors were angry. They were like, I don't want to wait on these. I don't want to help these. I said, wait on these patients. I don't want to help these patients. I don't want to get AIDS. I don't want being beat. I don't want to be stigmatized to, to, yeah. you know, that I'm helping these right. people. Um, and they felt like the the AIDS patients were going to ruin their careers. And I mean, like I know we, it's easy to look back now and be like, what a bunch of assholes. Yeah. But at the time, it had to be really scary because these people were dying. Yeah. And and there was no, there was like the knowledge. Nobody was knew anything. Yeah, well, it's kind of like exactly yeah, like, like the beginning COVID. of the pandemic. Yeah, like exactly, nobody knows anything, and somebody has to take care of them, and it's it's probably very scary. Well, and at the beginning too, like at the, you think about the beginning of COVID, we're like they were like, oh, only if you have like preexisting conditions, and then you would hear about somebody that was super healthy yeah, and just right. got it and died. Yeah, and you're like, oh shit, you know, it's right. scary. So I and mean, it I, seems like all these people are dying. So it's like. Yeah. It's not like they're coming in with AIDS and then leaving. But they knew it wasn't airborne. They knew it wasn't airborne. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, at some point, I don't know. I just but feel like. not knowing how it spread has to be but for, I also feel for like a doctor. I feel like be. part of this, too, is just it's because the location. They're gay. Well, well, they're gay. Yeah. It's the location and they're yeah. gay. Right. And, and I, I think, think it's a big yeah, part a big thing is, is that they're gay and it's like, ill. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, you're in the freaking redneck south for yeah. sure. So... Ruth's reputation spread and more people reached out to her for help. And she had a doctor reach out to her and tell her that he would help out. He would help her however he could. So she was like, I have some ideas. I have some ideas. So she found out later that this doctor was gay. He was oh. closeted. And so he wanted to help her as much as possible because he had a lot of friends that had already died. It's just so sad. Um, she was asked to be on the finance committee at church and was super excited because she was looked down upon a lot at church because she was a single mother. Yeah. And she didn't get included in a lot of things. And so um, and she was very poor. So they asked her one day, the pastor asked her to be on the finance committee. And she was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Yeah. Like, I am going to be like a church elder one day. <laughs> People are going to respect me. Yeah. And she was so excited about it. So she asked the pastor soon after if she could have a meeting room in the breezeway just outside in the breezeway of the parish for a support group for these aids patients oh god and he looked at her and took his glasses off and said surely you're not thinking of bringing those people into this church are you jeez oh, and she said oh no i'm not be- thinking of bringing those people into this church i'm talking about walking those people across the thirty thousand dollar lawn we just had installed for you then into your three hundred thousand dollar house the church just bought for you and sitting them on your sixty thousand dollars worth of new furniture we just bought you that's what i intend to do with those people. oh wow that's awesome <laughs> she was immediately removed from the finance committee <laughs> 
Was she kicked out of the church? I know, but she was like, people just always look down at her because she was like, you know, first of all, she was helping AIDS patients, and secondly, she was a single mother, and she was she didn't put up with shit from anybody. Yeah, and you're supposed to be a pastor, and you're fucking well, I mean, taking all this money. Like that was a lot of money. What year was this? This was 1980. That was a lot of yeah, money for him to be spending. Three hundred thousand dollars on a house. Yeah, that's that was re- so much. That was like, like a million, million dollars. dollars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And he's fucking like, oh, you're not bringing those Girl's people here. Girl's a Baptist here. preacher. They preach on Sunday and sleep with their neighbor on Monday. <laughs> I don't understand it. So later, <laughs> he tried to apologize to her. This like years later. He came up to her and he said, I really want to apologize um, for what I said about those people. Did she tell him to go fuck himself? And she said, well, here's the thing. You can't apologize to me. You have to apologize to them. They're all gone. So you're going to have to wait till you get to heaven. You're going to have to find them and beg them for forgiveness because I can't give it to you. It's them you hurt, not me. Yeah. And uh, she said, I just think he was <laughs> I just think he was an old man trying to get into heaven. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> she goes, maybe he was sorry. Maybe he wasn't. So or maybe he felt stupid because he know, now knows later that, knew that. Yeah. It was, yeah. He was being an asshole. I don't know. The challenges presented to Ruth every day were unimaginable. Every time she would visit a patient in the hospital, she would see their food trays on the floor outside their rooms and just be sick. So were they nurses just putting the... They're putting them outside on the floor, not even bringing them in the room to them and like expecting them to come get them. And at a certain point, they couldn't even get out of bed. Yeah. And they're like, oh, they're not going to eat it anyway. And she's like, I wouldn't eat a cold bologna sandwich with the just like flopped open. Nothing. Right. Yeah. It was like two pieces... Sitting on the floor. Two pieces of white bread. Right. Just flopped open. piece of bologna and it's like all disheveled on the tray and it's been sitting on the floor it's ridiculous because the cafeteria people weren't allowed to go in there so she um she said she would calmly tell the nurses that the men couldn't eat the food that was left in the hallway because they couldn't get to it number one she tried very hard to keep her composure and not like yell at them or anything like that because she felt like you know they would listen to her bet more and she'd get further you know by being calm she knew she needed to learn more about HIV/AIDS and how she could help others. She went headfirst into finding books, journal articles, anything she could about the disease. She went to a university library and just dug and dug and dug, took notes and notes and notes, and just found everything she could. The information was pretty scarce at this point, but it was out there. She just had to find it. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't easy to find. She read book after book, keeping notes of everything she was learning. So she decided it was time to start educating people. She needed more information about providing education to everybody so she could help everyone understand the facts, not the rumors. You know, everybody in the community, not just the gay community, but even the gay community didn't know enough facts yeah, about it. Yeah, sure. And they were – nobody was asking. Nobody was getting tested because the stigma just going with getting tested. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's one of the things that Brandon dealt with when he went to um, Africa. He – was trying to build clinics and help build safe houses for people to get tested because it's against the law to be gay in Africa. So if you go and get an STD test, it gives you a stigma of being gay. Right. So they won't go and get tested, and the spread is insane there. Oh, my god! And so he did, like, this whole... He did his... Um, he was a Fulbright scholar, and he went there and helped create these, like, safe houses and clinics and stuff and try and get oh, people wow. to get tested. It's that. so fucking sad. So I can't believe that's still going on. Oh, it's, yeah, that wasn't that long ago yeah, that Brandon I was know. there. He it's was very, just there. Yeah, because it's against the law to be gay. 
So you can't. I didn't know that. Yeah, and That's if you crazy. if you, if they find like one of those houses, they'll like raid it. And Brandon was in one of the houses one time when it got raided. It was very scary. Oh, Chris was like, he was texting Chris, and then Chris was with me, and I was like, oh my god, like I was total panic, total panic. And then he was at a drag show one time, and it got raided. In and he was hiding in it. Somebody saw him because he was American, very obviously, yeah. and he got shoved into a closet. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> like, Put it back in. <laughs> Brandon's like, girl, I'm coming out. <laughs> so he got shoved into a closet and he ended up, the police found him and he was brought to the police station. He's texting Chris this whole time and I'm with Chris freaking out yeah. again. And it turned out that when once they realized he was American, they were like, because they don't want... Because the yeah, pressure they, they would have that. gotten from right. the U.S. Yeah. because if they had him in jail, they let him go pretty much right away. But, you know, all his friends were now in jail for just being at a drag show. That's so crazy. It's nuts. That's the direction we're headed here. <sighs> Isn't that fucked up? It's I know. It's so scary. So one thing she did know without looking at the books was that these men needed to feel love. They needed to know someone cared about them and they needed home-cooked meals, nutrition, and most of all, kindness. So she found out through her doctor friend that there was a house just outside of town that several men were living in, and it was rumored that they had AIDS. She had a, she made it a point to find this house. She got in the car with her daughter. She's like, we're going to find this house of men. So the men were living in fear because they knew everyone was afraid of them. So yeah. they, like, didn't want to go to the store. They very carefully, like, they just, like, hung out in there. And, like, one guy was always, like, laying on the couch. And they all had their separate rooms. But they were all had AIDS. And they were, like, basically oh, wow. dying in this yeah. house together because they were terrified to go anywhere. So Ruth and Allison found the house and marched right in with home-cooked meals. She brought, like, a casserole or something into them. She was there to show them the love and give them the nutrition they were lacking. So she made it a point to take care of these men. She, like, became really good friends with all of them. They they all loved Allison. She would go over there all the time. Like, yeah. Christmas time, she went to a tree lot and talked to the owner and asked him if she, like, explained the situation. And he gave her this, like, Charlie Brown kind of tree. And yeah, she went right. and they decorated uh-huh. it with homemade decorations and did like, all that for Christmas for them. And she was constantly helping these men. So the bond that formed between her and the men was amazing. They needed her love and caring, and she was determined to let them know she was there for them every step of the way. One morning, Ruth was watching the news, and she saw a story about Princess Diana. I don't know if you remember this. I do. Um, She went to a hospital in London and went to the AIDS unit. And she was talking to the men. Yeah. She didn't have any PPE on I her. I remember seeing the footage, but yeah. I don't think I, like, watched it live. I remember this like it was yesterday. Um, she was talking to the men and touching their hands, and she didn't have any PPE on. I feel like she might have had a mask on, but I could be wrong about that. I don't think she did. I don't I, think she did I, either. I, I might have been seeing, thinking about another yeah. time where she had a mask on. But um, she, yeah, she just went in there. She had no—and everybody else was in, like— Full PPE. Yeah. And she just was like, no, and sat in their beds. And she got completely ripped, obviously, by the media for right. doing this. But Ruth saw this. And, like, she sees Princess Diana sitting on the edge of a bed of a man that has AIDS yeah, right. and holding his hand. And she was stunned. She was like, oh, my God. But she was also overjoyed at the same time. And I don't know if you remember, if you think about it, but the the footage of that, Princess Diana was wearing, like, a blue, a bright blue, yeah. like, flowy dress. dress yeah. And so Ruth got up that morning, put on her blue dress— and she felt a little, like, taller that day. She got, she, you know, she's like, 
I'm set out to do God's work today. Yeah, and she cute. had a little, she felt like a little stronger and a little taller that day. So it does so. make me think like, because I obviously don't remember all this going on because mm-hmm. I was too young, but, um, and which is why I'm saying like, I can understand how they would be afraid. Mm-hmm. But that makes me think like, they must have known enough to know that, like, I mean, Princess Diana's not going to do that without right. knowing that point, she right. can. Exactly. Exactly. So they, they, the world must have known enough that people were just doing it because they were gay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because people are just being yeah. ignorant. Absolutely. Yeah. I think so at that point. So the challenges of dealing with the healthcare system during the AIDS crisis were, were many. Ruth was doing everything she could to help the young men. She was challenged every day with the healthcare system. She would, um, you know, just getting them to help, getting them insurance and getting them help and stuff. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. But around this time was the same time as the Ryan White story. Do you remember this? No. Little boy. He was, well, probably about 10 or 11, maybe 12. Yeah. He had a blood transfusion because he had some sort of. I think he was had some sort of illness and he had a blood transfusion and he contracted HIV from the blood transfusion. And he was in the hospital and people were treating him like he was just like awful. Like he was being like ostracized. And yeah, because and he was just a kid. Yeah. And he got it from a blood transfusion. But everybody's just like, oh, no, you have AIDS. And it was. And so but once people started seeing the Ryan White story, they were like, oh, now we want to help. Yeah, right. Right. It was a because it was a kid and not a gay man. Right. A white straight. Yeah. Um, So it did help motivate medical studies and et cetera. But he did. It was definitely a very tragic story. Did he die? He did die. Yeah, he eventually died. Um, Everyone was afraid to help because they were afraid they would be infected or stereotyped if they stepped in. So she had to help these men with health care so they could get the proper care and treatment that they needed. So she figured out how to do all this. She had no idea how to do it. And she figured out how to help these men go and get all kinds of government assistance, get like on Medicaid and get on um, get like food stamps and all those kind of things. So she helped them get the government benefits that they deserved. And none of them even knew that they could get it or didn't understand how to do it. Um, So she helped them. I'm surprised they could get anything. Well, they could because they were they were sick and they couldn't work. Yeah. So it'd be they'd get Medicaid. But, you know, back then, I'm surprised it wasn't just denied. Yeah. So she um, so she helped them do all that. And then she could help them, like, plan their funerals and all those kind of things as well and set aside money to have what they wanted and how they wanted it set up. If they needed a will, she would help them with that. It was all kinds of things. Wow. So she figured out the system on her own. Um. She wanted these men to have this before they were on their deathbed. So they, you know, everything was planned. and it was Yeah, there... when they're still, like, able to think. Right. And there was, like, some men that, you know, she knew that they didn't, you know, nobody in their family wanted them. But they really wanted this letter to get sent to, you know, my aunt so-and-so because she always loved me no matter what. Right. And, or, or, like, send this to my parents. I want my parents to have this even though they might not want it. I, I I want this sent to them when I die or something like that. So she like took care of all that stuff for them. That's such like such a huge burden on her. Like the fact that she was willing to do that is amazing. It's a lot. It's a lot. I mean, just doing that for one person is a lot. Well, the doors that she probably had slammed in her face were insane. So her efforts were all to ensure that her patients received the care they deserved. Um, She worked every day to ensure that 
her young men, as she called them in the interviews that I heard her talking on. <laughs> they were her young men, my men, um, were well cared for and everything to keep them comfortable until they passed. While her advocacy efforts were primarily focused on providing direct care and support to individuals affected by HIV-AIDS, her actions and experiences contributed to raising awareness about the challenges faced by the gay, by the gay community during the epidemic. She knew she had to get more people tested, but no one wanted the stigma of going to get tested. So this is where that doctor comes in that I told you about earlier. He told her, she went to him, and he told her that if she got samples from these men and brought them to him after hours, he would run the tests, oh. have them tested. So she would go around, and they people found out, like, just constantly, like, calling her that she would test people. And she, would, she was like, I was... Submitting tests with the name Mickey Mouse, Peter Pan. Oh, really? Yeah, just whatever. She, <laughs> she was, was doing. And they were testing for AIDS? Yeah, she, they were testing for HIV. Nobody wanted to do it, but she was doing it all for them. Yeah. And she was taking it, like, literally in the back door of it. Not literally, but, well, no, literally in the back door of this doctor's yeah. um, office, like, after hours, like, oh, sneaking wow. in and he yeah. was helping. Um, and so he promised, she made, he made her promise that nobody would know that he was helping. Yeah. She was like, mum's the word. Um, she had men from all over town coming to her for private testing. And then later, she would, like, pass these men on the street with their wives. And oh, they would just kind of nod at yeah. her. And she would, like, yeah. You know, and she knew a Pretty lot, but she, she kept her them. mouth shut. Yeah. And it was their business and not hers, to, not her story to tell kind of thing. So she also received hate calls on the regular. People would call oh, and sure. threaten her. Yeah. And, you know, just, one time she was stopped on the street by a woman who was condemning her for working with those men. How could you do this? Those homosexuals. Your poor, poor, poor daughter will never become a debutante. <laughs> <laughs> Ruth just laughed in her face. She knew that this woman's son was gay, but he had. But she, it was not her secret to tell. Again, she was like... Yeah. But, you know, here she is saying... Which is also sad for him. Yeah, it's terrible I for mean, him. But she was saying... She was laughed in this woman's face just because she's like, your daughter will never be a debutante. And Ruth's like, if you only knew that that's the last thing on my mind. Yeah, right. I could give a shit less yeah. if she's a debutante. I want her to be a smart, independent woman, you know? So <laughs> she um, constantly had to face the heartbreaking reality of losing many of the young men she cared for. Caring for dying men took a severe emotional toll on her. She not only had to witness the suffering and deaths of her patients, but also had to face the grief of families and friends who had abandoned their loved ones due to fear and stigma. But don't think for one minute Ruth had lost her sense of humor. <laughs> she said about death, she was quote, I quote her saying, Death is like an old drag queen with bright red hair sitting on piano in an old saloon. <laughs> she goes, I guess I was just born defiant. So I'm going to tell you a story about one day she was bringing a friend of hers, mother, to Walmart. And they parked in a handicapped parking place. I'm going to read you this excerpt from her book that made me laugh so freaking hard. Hang on. Let me find it. I have it, I have it flagged, but of course I can't find it now. Okay. So it says, this is on page... 190 of the book All Young Men. Uh, it's written with Kevin Carr O'Leary and Ruth Corker Burks. Uh, Coker Burks, sorry. Corker. <laughs> Corker. Okay. So we pulled into the Walmart lot. She pointed to a handicapped spot near the front, like I wouldn't see it. We just had gotten out 
when someone came walking up and stopped us to give us a different disapproving look. You know that spot is for handicapped people, he said. He was a little pipsqueak, someone who should have had something better to do than heckle two old ladies or two heckle two ladies, not old ladies, sorry. Oh, you're just oh, you're just who I need. Her the woman's name was Donnie. Donnie said in a sweet voice, can you come over here and help me with something? She pointed to the inside of the van. He softened, maybe remembering his southern manners. Well, sure, he said, I can help you. And she thought, Ruth thought, oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, I'm, what are you going to do? He ambled over as she leaned on the side of the van. When he went to look in the window, she took off her right, (laughs) she took off her right leg and in one fell swoop. And started beating him with it. <laughs> she had a pig leg? She had a oh, that's funny. This is why I park in the handicap, she said, hopping on one leg. He ran away, <laughs> ditching whatever he was going to Walmart for. I didn't say a word, and I looked away as she hiked up her dress and reattached her leg. I acted like this happened all day, every day. Give me a hard time, she m- m- muttered to herself. Well, you showed him, Donnie. <laughs> well, sometimes, she said, straightening her posture to walk with me. You have to let people know what's what. <laughs> oh, my God. That's hilarious. So that was just an old woman she was bringing to Walmart. I just That made me laugh so hard. I was, like, <laughs> laying in bed, cracking up reading that. You know what? I bet he never said another thing to somebody I in know, a like, handicap parking. Fucking business. Yeah. The woman has one leg. I Obviously, bet he did she start minding his business. Yeah. So, Some old lady beat him with oh a freaking prosthetic leg. I just leg. think it's so she beat him. And this one was, so this woman was de- definitely acted like she disapproved of what Ruth was doing. Yeah. But she would always make meals for her to bring to her men. Oh, really? Yeah. And she would, she would tell her, oh, I made this, this, and this. And because um, Ruth was a good cook and she loved to cook. And she was like, oh, I made this. this and then the, this woman, Donnie, would say, oh, here, try this. Bring this. See how, how they like this. Yeah. You know? She was like, <laughs> yeah. So it was really kind of cool. Um, she found the best way to cope with her emotions and grief was to provide better care, immerse, immerse herself in this cause. She learned on her she leaned on her closest friends for help when she was in great need. I'm sure it was very hard to. She was pretty strong, so to deal with all of that. So a little bit of information about her that I didn't really, I didn't really squeeze into the story, but just from reading. So she was a pretty strong woman. She like didn't cry much and stuff like that. She was just very strong. Yeah. Death was something that she dealt with a lot as a young kid. So when her dad died, she her grandparents lived there, and they, I think one of her grandparents had already died, or she, they they kept people at home to die, and so when she was a kid. By the time her dad died, I think the dad was the third person that she had helped care for until they died. And so she watched them die. So it was not something like you and I would be like, oh, my God. Yeah, Yeah. right. It was very common to keep people at home until they died. Oh, wow. And so she was – it was just kind of a thing to her. It wasn't – Yeah, right. Something that happened to people. Yeah. Yeah. And she learned how to deal with it. Still very – As a very young kid. Yeah, but she learned how to deal with it as a young kid. I think, you know, it's it's hard to deal with stuff like that as an adult if you've never dealt with it as a kid. Yeah. I think it may I'm not not that it's not easy not that it's easy if you have, but I just think that. Well, I so. saw a meme that said um something about they said I was being so strong as a kid, but I shouldn't have had to be strong. I I should have been a kid. Oh yeah, absolutely. Something, some it was well, and that's how her childhood worded better was. like that's that. A, absolutely, and they Which, were just like yeah. they were country people, and they were just like it was a very simple. Yeah, you know, it was like 
dad's going to die and he's going to die here. We're not going to take him to a hospital to die. Right. I know. So it's, yeah, it's very. And we are very soft now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it was then. very simplistic and logical back then. Right. Yeah. And now it's like, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, our dog went to live on a farm. Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) And that will always be true. Yes. My parents did send our dog to live on a farm. And so later on in life, I was like, did you really send Honey to a farm or did you kill it? They were like, no, 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 we really did. They, I mean, I don't know if they lied to me. I think they're lying. But no, because we got her from this farm upstate. And when my parents didn't want her anymore or they couldn't handle her anymore, the people that, like, owned her mother didn't, like, they didn't have any more of her puppies and they 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 took her back. So I Okay. That might be a true story. I don't it know. could be, but they could still be lying. I don't know. I think my parents know that I would probably freak out, though. So, so anyway, <laughs> she was a very strong and determined woman. She had an amazing ability to confront a challenge head on. When she was committed to something, that was, it was almost impossible for her not to achieve it. Ruth, Ruth credits her spirituality to most of her determination. She prayed often and trusted that God put her here for a reason, and she wasn't going to let him down. At one point, she decided that Governor Clinton. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's from Arkansas, too. Arkansas, too. (laughs) He needed to know what was going on in Hot Springs. She started writing a letter explaining everything she was doing and telling him about each one of her young men and explained what she was doing to help them. And apparently she said, you know, he had he had his he had his problems back then (laughs) in the book. And she said, but we supported him. We we had his back like this. The state. Like, they loved him, yeah. and they had his back. And that's how it was back in the day. I mean, yeah, yeah. you you respected your oh, politician Yeah, your whether president. you were on that party or right, not, absolutely. Yeah. It was he very was a Democrat, different. and that, I, I feel like have it was, to think that Arkansas is a Republican state. Yeah, I think it was probably up like that up until Trump. Yeah. <laughs> At least somewhat, his, you know. not say his name on my podcast. It's not your podcast. It is my podcast. It's our podcast. I let you... Participate. Oh, thank you. Am I your, am I your co-host? You're my co-host. <laughs> I'm kidding. If anybody's podcast, it's Rose. It's not mine. So she followed up doing this several times and would get a call from the governor once in a while to find out how she was doing and how the young men were. Were there any new discoveries? Any, any, he, he, oh, really? He yeah, actually cared? That's kind of cool. Well, that's good. So she focused her efforts to combat discrimination and stigma around HIV AIDS. Her willingness to step forward and care for those individuals, even when others turned them away, it humanized the disease and challenged the prevailing discrimination. She sought out misinformation regarding HIV AIDS and would only speak and would openly speak up to help educate. She'd attend she would go, she'd attend uh, drag shows at gay bars and just go to gay bars in town and set up a table and hand out condoms and have educational literature oh, for people. Wow. And they could come up to the table. And, and it was funny because she went and asked them if she could be at this drag show and with education materials. Yeah. And they're like, well, nobody here has that. And she's like, oh, I know they don't. I know they don't. But I just, I just, it can't hurt to keep everybody safe and let them understand, yeah, you yeah. know, what, what you need to be careful about and what, you know, what true and what is false people can ask me questions and i can educate them so she would set up a little table at these drag show events and at at the gay bar and she would have a a big bowl of condoms and then the days that she wasn't um there to give literature and information she had a bowl of condoms sitting on top of always kept it full on top of the cigarette machine in the bar that's so smart yeah i mean i mean i bet a lot of people just didn't use them because they didn't have access to them right and she would say like okay for every sexual act you need a new condom yeah so like if you change 
a position or something, you need to use a different comment. She was like, educate them extensively. Comments are the worst. I hate them too, but <laughs> back then, I would have used them back then for sure. Yeah. So she would walk right into the health department and ask for the condoms. She's like, can I get some condoms to hand out? And they were like, uh, <laughs> who sent you? And she's like, what do you mean who sent me? And she was, And she was like... You know, they were like, well, we need to know who ordered them, like who told you to come get them. Yeah. And she's like, oh, that guy on the second floor, uh, third floor. What's his name? Uh, and the lady's like, okay, third floor. Okay, I got it. Here you go. And would hand oh, her like, really? a big box of yeah. condoms and she'd go and hand them out. Which is what they should have been doing. And they should have been handing them out on every fucking street right. corner. Absolutely. Um, you know, because part of it, a big part of, I think, um, unprotected sex is like, the spur of the moment, like something just kind of happens, yeah. and you don't expect it. If you have one in your pocket all the time, then it doesn't matter yeah. where you are, when you are, you have it. So she said that you don't know the importance of love, acceptance and human connection during a crisis until you immerse yourself in it. That's something she said. It wasn't long before she realized that her young men were living longer and maintaining a better quality of life than other patients around the world. When well, every... Sorry to interrupt you again, but every person that gets a condom and doesn't get AIDS is saving like four people. Oh, or yeah. how many ever, ever people? I don't. I don't know how many like the average person that you would, the average amount of people you would spread it to. But you think that every person that didn't get it from somebody who yeah. had AIDS, it, you're saving like a bunch of people, other people. Well, the thing is too is you have to think that, um, you know. In the gay community, they're they're very like free love, right? Right, and so you know there are situations where people are sleeping with more than one person at a time. I mean, that's in the right straight community too. Don't get me wrong. What? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Chris hasn't told you about us. <laughs> <laughs> he just drove off the road, <laughs> <laughs> or he just threw up at his desk. One of the two. <laughs> but they, yeah, and so it's like if they having them on their person all the time is. Is what has to happen in that right, situation. Yeah. Or just having, like, you're at a club and you're, like, going home with somebody. You're like, oh, oh let's look, grab a couple of yeah, yeah, exactly. So when these men, her men, were living longer and healthier lives, the government came and investigated. Like, the, I think it was the CDC came and investigated. They're like, what are you, what is she doing differently? Oh, really? Yeah. Like, wow. How are these men living longer yeah. than your average patient in a hospital? And they found... Nothing that she was doing differently. So she would, like the AZT drug back then was really expensive. And so she would get them, she would help them apply for insurance and stuff like that and get them prescribed the AZT drug. And then if somebody would die before they finished taking it. She would save it. She would stockpile it and then give it to other people. She she was in. What is that drug? It was, AZT was some, something to help. Um, with AIDS. Just kind of prolonged I think if you had AIDS, I think it was like, I don't remember, it was like a, it was definitely a drug that, I remember the name of it coming out as being something that prevents HIV yeah. from becoming AIDS maybe or something like that. I have a friend with HIV and he, um, he said without insurance, I think it was like 10 grand a month or something. It was something crazy. For whatever he's taking. Yeah, for yeah, the medication. It's, it's insane. But so what she would do is stockpile it and then, like, with the doctor, the doctor that was helping her would tell her what the dosage was. Okay. And so she had this all written down. And so the next patient that would come along, she'd start giving it to them right away until, until she got them the benefits yeah. and stuff. Wow. So she was, yeah, she was, like, basically That's dealing amazing. drugs. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> whatever. In a good she, way. Yeah. So 
The only difference they found between what she was doing and what the government was doing in other hospitals was that she was offering them love. Yeah. She was giving them hope, love, and home-cooked meals. So she was cooking them, like, fatty meals. She's like, oh, I'd put extra butter in that cobbler. And Mm -hmm. she would, you know, she was like, because these men were like skin and bones. So, you know, she knew they needed nutrition and she would give them well-balanced meals, but she was also making them, like, fatty stuff to help kind of keep meat on their bones. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, so that they figured that they... Besides the home-cooked meals, the only thing they could figure was the love, Aww. which is so sweet. Aww. So her advocacy advocacy demonstrated the power of empathy and compassion in combating discrimination. Her actions encouraged others encouraged others to reevaluate their own prejudices and judgments, leading to a more empathetic and supportive response to those affected by AIDS. Imagine that. <laughs> so reflecting on the impact of her work during the AIDS epidemic is huge to me. Um, where would we be if people didn't know what she did? I'm sorry. Where would we be if people didn't do what she did? If people didn't ever educate themselves? You know, if nobody stepped up and said, we got to figure this out. Yeah. Um, also, where would all these, this is what you said at the beginning, where would all these unwanted people be buried? Would they be buried? What would they do with them? Right. I mean, I'm I sure the know. state has a system if somebody's like a John Doe or something. Do they just like cremate them and then I'm sure, yeah. like throw their ashes away? I don't know what they do. But I mean, like, but still, I mean, everybody deserves, and she said this over and over again in the book, everybody deserves a proper burial. Right. Or, or, or like, you know, a closing ceremony for their life. like loved and just... Well, somebody to sit with you as you're dying. Well, I mean, you think about the people that love them the most, the people that are supposed to have to love them, their parents have turned their backs on them at this point. And so they felt no love. So these people that are in the hospitals that the government was helping, they're dying alone. And that was like so big thing about COVID is all those people that were dying alone in the hospitals because nobody could go sit with them. I mean, it's just tragic. It's absolutely tragic. It is super tragic. And so she changed that. Um, so through her re- relentless dedication and compassion, compassionate approach, she humanized the plight of those suffering from AIDS, shed light on the urgent need for improved treatment and support. Her story and advo- advocacy efforts have since become an inspiration for others, influencing public perception, encouraging a more empathetic and proactive response to HIV AIDS. While Ruth's advocacy may not have led to direct policy changes, her legacy continues to shape the discourse around HIV AIDS and the importance of compassion and understanding in healthcare and society as a whole. Despite these challenges, Ruth Burks persisted in her mission to provide care, support, and dignity to those affected by HIV AIDS. Her unwavering compassion and courage continue to inspire people to this day. So... One of the things um, she talked about in her many of her interviews, um, they would ask her, like, what 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 do people do that want to help in any situation, not just with AIDS, but in any situation? And she said, put down your phone and pick up your head. And it's it it, like really hit me. It struck me because she said, had I had a phone like my my iPhone and I was sitting in that room with my friend. I would have just been scrolling through social media, Facebook, or whatever. That's I what I was thinking when you said that. Like back, like I was thinking, yeah, back then, like you would walk around and, yeah. and talk to people, and now it's like, right, you just completely People's... turn tune out the world and look at your phone right. and watch stupid videos on TikTok. Absolutely. And so she said, "Pick up your phone and look around." 
because somebody around you always needs your help. Yeah. And and it makes so much sense because she said, had I had a phone and was sitting in her friend's room, I would have just been scrolling. Through. I never would have gotten up and walked around. Right. I never would have seen this man. This man right. would have died alone. And then, yeah, she wouldn't have gone. Like on she talks. Of, yeah. She talks about how like some of the men she went and sat with while they died, like were so dehydrated. And when you're in a hospital, there is zero reason why you should be dehydrated. Yeah. Like that's like negligence on the hospital if you're yeah. dehydrated. And they were so dehydrated they couldn't even they couldn't even cry a tear. Ugh. And you know, not to mention how much sicker you feel when you're dehydrated. Yeah, no shit. So yeah, so she stepped up. Now, that being this whole story being said, I did come across an interesting story. Um I came across a story that said that she um, exaggerated her her story, that her story oh. is not factual. And I was like, wait, what? As I'm just about done with the story. <laughs> I was like, no, ma'am. And it turns out that, like, some people say people that lived in Arkansas at the time yeah. in um, Hot Springs, that she – there's no way – because she said she helped thousand over a thousand men – and they're like, there's no way she helped a thousand men. I mean, were there a thousand men in Arkansas with AIDS at the time? Well, I mean, but but see, the thing is, is that everybody was hush hush about it. How do they know yeah. who she helped? Yeah. So also, people say that the, that the so um, I feel like it's responsible for me to you know to kind of give the other side a little bit. People say that the cemetery is named the Field Cemetery, F I E L D S, and it's named after the Fields family who was originally buried there, and apparently. Someone in her family was a neighbor of the fields, and so they let them be buried there. So her family is buried there, too. The cemetery is not as big as um, as it seems because there's not even 262 lots to oh. begin with. So how could she have bought those? Or So there's a lot of controversy. Okay. Also, when she, um, at a certain point in her life, um, she got really, really, really sick. Yeah. And so she was doing like a go or raising money for to build a memorial in the cemetery for these men that all had been buried there and she let them pick out her their space she'd take them if they were well enough yeah to the cemetery and say where do you want me to bury you and they'd pick their spot and she would note it and bury them and so she has started raising money um for a memorial in the cemetery for these men well around the same time she got really sick and got had a stroke and they said that she had like a 70 percent chance of dying and so the and she didn't have insurance at the time. Something happened with her insurance. I didn't get that whole story, but something happened with her insurance. And so the GoFundMe was also to help pay her medical bills. Okay. So there's an investigation about the money from the GoFundMe, where it went. The GoFundMe is like uh, closed now and on hold and being investigated by GoFundMe. Um, people say that she didn't care for that many men. She didn't own the cemetery. But she didn't like she says it was my cemetery just because most of her family was buried there and she yeah. owned all these lots that her mom had bought. I don't know. I, you know. So you don't know if she really owned all the lots? Well, I mean, her. Isn't there? I mean, there's a way to prove if the men are there, right? Well, how many men are? No, but she I mean, she buried them there. Definitely the ones that she buried there. But um, some of the men, not all the men were buried there. Some of them were yeah, buried okay. in the public cemetery and yeah. such, but or in other places. But. I don't know that like somebody looked up. I read something. Somebody looked up the cemetery and how many lots. I think there was like originally or there's like only a hundred and something lots left. 
and there was definitely at least 30 or 40 graves there. So there's no way that she could have owned 260. Oh. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. that I'm just just trying to maintain the accuracy because that's something I came across. But it's also possible too. that they decreased the amount of lots there over time. Well, if at a no certain point where there. like where lots like two lots became one. Yeah. Or like two people buried on the same lot or whatever. Yeah. Maybe yeah. the what her mother bought was the equivalent of two, 262 lots, but it's actually only 130. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't know. But I mean even if she, even if she exaggerated, even if she exaggerated the numbers, let's say she helped five men and not a thousand. She right. helped five men. Yeah. She helped the one. That's all that matters. She yeah. right. ended up going to Washington D.C. and she ended up going to help, um, like pass laws and and yeah, I mean, do all kind of yeah. advocacy and work. And if the for CDC AIDS. came to see what she was doing, yeah. then obviously. It's legit. I mean, yeah. she's doing something. Right. And Clinton spoke with her. Yeah. And he actually gave her an award when he was president. There's a picture I'll post it on our social media of her being awarded with something while she was he was in president while he while he was president. Yeah. So it's really it's pretty interesting. It could just be accuracy over the years. Yeah. I mean, you just don't know for yeah. sure. But I just thought I'd mention it at the end. But I still think like or I exaggeration. said, exaggeration. It, it doesn't matter if it was one man or a thousand men. Yeah. She helped somebody that needed her and that's that's all that matters yeah, to me so i agree and it's it's a tragic story it's absolutely tragic it is weird you know i was thinking when you were telling the story about how society overreacts to things like this like covid like, like i can parents. remember thinking about covid and how they like you know basically shut down the hospitals and you were like you were saying people were dying alone and stuff yep. If we would have used some fucking common sense, mm-hmm. put on some PPE and let their families go in there. Why? Like, but no, it had to be all or nothing. Yeah. Everybody was freaking out. Everybody was acting like. And it like... was like that for years, like years. Yeah. And over I remember I, so I was doing with Lily. She was born June 23rd, 2020. So a couple months after the pandemic started. And I remember like a month before she was born reading that Babies were being taken away from moms with COVID and because and they were being separated like babies, like a mom would have COVID and the baby would be born and they would take immediately take the baby away from the mom. Like and that's like, not, like what's going to cause them more harm? Really? I mean, it's a baby because I was terrified that that oh was going to fucking happen to me. And luckily, by the time I had Lily, that had kind of calmed down and, and um, it wasn't. I don't know if it happened in Charlottesville, but I know it's happening in New York a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had calmed down. But I'm like, we're saving. I mean, I know you're you're thinking like, oh, this this baby could possibly die from it. But mm-hmm. at the same time, like, we have all this PPE for a reason. Do something to protect the yeah, baby. Yeah, but hospitals were also. Don't you remember during the pandemic oh, they, they were running ha- but out at of that PPE? Point, they, I think they by the end of the first year, but at first yeah. they were running out of yeah. like 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 nurses were begging people on their social media to not buy N95 masks. Yeah, stay home, don't buy because they were running people, out of masks. Because people were like hoarding them. Like nurses were having to wear the same mask day yeah. after day, which is like awful. I remember our whole um, community, all the the sewers in our community, which mm-hmm. were all women, of course, um, sewed 
masks for everyone in the community, mm-hmm. they, like over 600 masks, mm-hmm. you know, the cotton masks. <laughs> yeah. My mom and um, my mom and my sister, both my older sister and my mom made masks really? for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. I just sat on my ass. And so we would have masks to wear. But remember at first it was like, don't wear a mask. And then it was like, you need to wear a mask. Well, part of the reason they were telling us not to wear them is because they were, it was, we were taking them from the medical profession. Yeah, but they were making like, it was not safe to wear them. But yeah, they were saying, don't, you know, don't wear them. But I think that was more for the medical professionals to have them. Because I felt so sorry. Could you imagine like being there and having to do your job and not feeling protected? Yeah, I know. No, that's scary as shit. No, that is really scary. So, I mean, this was definitely scary. Um time but it's like if they like back then it's like if they would have just used some fucking common sense right they wouldn't these men wouldn't have had to die alone but they didn't want to use common sense because they were gay and they didn't care about oh it. yeah absolutely not they deserved if it, they were straight know? white men it would yeah. it would have been oh, totally sure. different yeah absolutely yeah so which is really sad very sad so that's good i enjoyed thanks. that so if you like that Make sure you hop on your your podcast platform, preferably the Apple podcast platform, and give us a like, which is like click on the little button to check, and that makes you follow us. And then give us, rate us, and review us. You don't have to write a big, long review. You can just say that Lynn's hot. It's okay. You don't have to. Rose won't be insulted. And we have, I will be insulted. But... Oh, so then say Rose is okay, too. <laughs> 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 so I love your boobs, then. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, and we have 150 followers on Woo-hoo! Apple now. So we just need um, some more reviews. For we need some more reviews for me to go on a vacation. I need to get my tan on because I'm losing my tan from the beach last I know, time. Me too. I'm getting white again. So we need to be going to the beach. So y'all, like I said before, if you're just hanging out with somebody, just take their phone and go on and follow, rate, and review us on their phone. Or do like I do whenever I'm around a group of people. Everybody get out their phones. <laughs> click on the click on the purple square with the white eye. Okay. Type in no ordinary women. I go through the whole thing. I make everybody did it. I did do it when I was really? in Illinois. Everybody did it. That's so funny. So, yep. I got some good rates and reviews out of that one. I don't think anyone do that. Why wouldn't you? Because I don't know anyone. <laughs> oh, my God. You can do it to your residents. <laughs> yeah. You can tell them. You'd be like, look over there. And then just take their phone and, and rate and read really quick. Yeah, Do, there you, do go. you have an Apple? <laughs> 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 All right, you guys. So give us a follow and let us know how you like the story on our social media on No Ordinary Women Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And on Twitter, No Ord, O-R-D, Women Pod. Reach out and let us know how you like it. And if um, you have any friends like Linda's, I have bunches of friends. Let them know about the pod if you like it. I got friends for days, y'all. That's how we can get more followers. Yes. Share. Letting, letting people Definitely. know. Definitely. Yeah, when you share. see one of our posts, share it. I bullied my kids into sharing our posts last week. Well, even just telling your friends about it. Like, oh, I know, you know, I've been listening to this podcast. It's amazing. Amazing. These two brave, way beautiful women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah that that so so we'll see you next week bye bye